please, and open them to Matthew chapter 10. And while you're looking there, I, I want to read one verse of Scripture to you from Hebrews chapter 11. The writer of Hebrews says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, most of you that are familiar with that passage know that it comes from a chapter in Hebrews chapter 11 that is called the Hall of Faith. And that chapter is filled with examples of believers that through faith endured many hardships. Many of them lost their lives, but they were committed wholly to following the Lord. And I find that passage to be a parallel to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, because there is a high level of commitment that Christ expects from his followers. And that cost of involved in following Jesus is one that is mostly foreign to the thinking and the preaching that we find in most churches today. Now, I want you to hear the words of Jesus. I, these are not words that I've made up. These come directly from the Bible. Jesus spoke them, and he was teaching to his disciples about the real cost of Christianity. If you look in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34, stand with me again for the reading of God's word. Matthew 10, verse number 34, Jesus says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man, a set of man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. I pray, Lord, you'd open up our hearts to what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Matthew chapter 10 is a grueling passage for the flesh. This is a very difficult chapter for people because the type of Christianity that we find here is far different from the normal preaching that you would find on any given Sunday morning in just about any church that you would attend. We're always being told that Christianity is not supposed to be hard, that it should spruce up our lives a bit, that it should make us feel a little bit better. Christianity is something that makes us winners in the world and not losers. So Christianity, conversion, becoming a follower of Christ is really more about us than it is about him. Now today's Christianity has no view towards the glory of God. There's very little about what Christ expects. It says hardly anything about the real purpose of Christ coming to this earth. And so there is no gospel of repentance from sin. There is no fear of the wrath of God that is to come. There's no change of behavior. 
But rather, the Christianity of today is nothing like what we read in the Scripture, read in this passage or the preceding verses that we've already studied in Matthew chapter 10. And you might wonder why that after all these weeks of study in this chapter that I keep coming back to the same themes over and over again. Well, it's because this is the theme of the chapter. Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples, and he gave them a description of what life would be like when they began to preach the kingdom of God. They would be attacked for their preaching. Some would believe them, but many would not believe And we know by history and looking at the world around us today that there are few that believe, but the few that do believe will find themselves in the very same position as Jesus and the apostles, that they are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. We're different from others. Christianity makes us different from other people. Our values are different, our desires are different, our lives are different. And no matter how much the world likes to tout this idea, the value of diversity in religions, diversity among people, this is what they're not ready for. They're not ready for a type of Christianity that Jesus preaches because it does not fit in with their system. And so the answer to the problem, they believe, is to change biblical Christianity into something that the world will accept, something that is blended with worldly values, And so it incorporates into it much of the world's thinking. It seeks to unite people under a banner in which the Word of God says absolutely will not fit with the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Christianity is light versus darkness. It's righteousness versus unrighteousness. It's truth versus error. And if you really want to get down to the brass tacks of what Jesus teaches in the Scripture from the words of the Savior himself, that this is the children of the devil versus the children of God the Father. And no matter how you try to squeeze those two together into the same place, and no matter how much you try to unite them, you simply cannot do it unless you change one or the other. You can't have light and darkness that are existing in the same space. So either these people are going to get saved and they'll be converted from their sins and they'll become entirely different from the world, as true Christians are, or Christianity has to be changed to be like the world, to have the same values as the world, the same desires, which in effect is to destroy the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you that that is the way that the Christian world is today. It's not the Christianity of Christ. It's not the Christianity of the cross. It's not a group of sojourners that are pilgrims and foreigners that are just passing through this world. But it's a Christianity that's very much at home with the world just the way that it is. And so you find that people are seeking more money. They want a little bit more contentment. They want more happiness. And they are living a pipe dream, thinking that they're on their way to heaven when there is no real reason to think that they are. And that's because we are not going to reach heaven on our terms. And we are not going to be disciples of Christ on our terms. The Bible describes the way that we go to heaven. And going there is through real faith in Jesus Christ And in this chapter, Jesus tells us very plainly what following him is all about. And if we've settled on something less than what we find in this chapter, then we really don't have saving faith. Now, I'd like for us to look at how this section begins. 
And I wanted to note, denote this, uh, and this will be our subject for today, the paradox of peace. The paradox of peace. There is a paradox that we find in the 34th verse, and this is not what we expect Jesus to teach. He says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. And I would dare say that if you were to talk to any of our national leaders today, if you were to talk to church leaders in this country around the world, they would tell you that what Jesus seeks ultimately, what he wants more than anything that there is, for there to be peace, love, and harmony throughout the whole world. He doesn't want division. He is interested in uniting all people. Now, back in the 60s and 70s, there was a Jesus movement. And the thrust of that movement was for everyone to peace out, Just love everybody, love each other, stop all war, stop all disagreement, stop all fighting. Let's just love other people in the way that Jesus taught us to love. And so they sought to find that peace and love and contentment in an idealistic Jesus without actually knowing the way that Jesus said peace can be found. They did not understand that Jesus will bring peace but not until man is at peace with God. And then when we are at peace with God, we will be at peace with each other. Now let me show you this morning what I mean by the paradox of peace. There is peace in Jesus Christ, and the peace that we find in him is the believer's peace. It's the believer's peace. The peace that Jesus came to bring is a peace that's predicated upon ending the hostility that exists between man and God. So Jesus really did come to bring peace, but the way that he brings it is through faith in him as the Savior of the world. And being the Savior, as I've said so many times before, means that there is something to be saved from. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And I want to remember you to remember that I said that trying to squeeze the world and Christianity together into the same space is impossible. The Apostle Paul went on to say in Romans 1, "...because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but their vain became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened." And so here is that darkness and light contrast The hearts of men and women are darkened. They do not have the light of God. They do not have a relationship with God. There is only one way to be reconciled to God and have peace with him. And that peace is obtained by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity, that means the hostility thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. Now there Paul is speaking to Gentiles, and without going into a long explanation of that entire text, he's teaching that all people, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, are brought to peace with God in one way. 
And again, I'll keep repeating this, that that peace comes through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross because that is what satisfied God and made payment for the sins that we have committed. So if you want to have peace with God, if you want the peace that Jesus brings, you have to trust him completely to forgive you of your sins. You have to admit that you are a sinner, that sin has separated you from God, and you're living under the curse of God because of those sins. And that's the only way to be reconciled and to achieve peace. So any person who tries to make a lasting peace with his fellow man is, without making peace with God is simply living in a dream world. And that's why in human history we have never had a lasting peace It's impossible for us to have it because sin separates us from God and sin separates us from each other. And that's true on the world level. It's true on the national level. It's true on the neighborhood level. And in verse number 35, it even tells us it's true on the family level. If families that know each other and live with each other cannot live in peace, how would you ever expect that the world could have peace? See, the only lasting peace is to have God at the center of every relationship and to have it all orbit around him. We have to have peace with God through the sacrifice of Christ, and then we'll be at peace with each other. So all people that are at peace with God will be at peace with each other. Now, an interesting thing, I I came in early this morning. I was sitting down next to Zelda there in the pew, And uh, she was telling me about uh, a religious meeting that they had in the place where she lives. And uh, I I assume that, uh, well, just by reading some of the material here, that they were talking, of course, talking about peace with God and, and how to live with your fellow man and all of this. And the reading that they were given came from a social scientist who won the Nobel Prize in 1950. Now, I want to read to you what was said at this religious meeting. These are, I'm quoting the words, Unfortunately, there may be yet some in the world who have not learned that today war can settle nothing, that aggressive force can never be enough nor will be tolerated. In this advanced day, there is no excuse, no justification for nations to force, nations resorting to force, rather, except to repel armed attack. With the world and its people being as they are, there's no easy or quick infallible approach to secure peace. It is only by patient, persistent, undismayed effort, by trial and error, that peace can be won. Peace cannot be achieved in a vacuum. Peace must be paced by human progress. Peace is not mere matter of fighting, people fighting or not fighting. Peace to have many meaning for many who have only known suffering and peace and war must be translated, listen, into bread and rice shelter, health, and education, as well as freedom and human dignity, a steadily better life. If peace is to be secure, then the long-suffering and long-starved, forgotten peoples of the world, the underprivileged and the undernourished, you must begin to realize without delay the promise of a new day and a new life. In this entire passage, which includes a prayer, there is not one mention of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not one mention about how true peace can come to the world, which is through Jesus Christ. And this is typical of the world's thinking because they're trying to do something that's never been done before. And they're going to tell us that peace comes when people can just get together, when people can just change their minds, when people just hand out rice and beans, 
and give them education, whatever it might be, then peace will come to the world. That's the most foolish thing that could ever be said. Peace only comes when man has peace with God. We cannot be at peace with each other until we have peace with God. And so you can see that anyone who tries to make peace by uniting people around principles that Jesus taught without knowing the one who gave those principles, without having come to him in faith, he's just lost it. There is nothing there. You must be reconciled to God. Now that ought to show you that a Christianity that compromises with the world and tries to put light and darkness into the same space is not only fruitless, but it is dangerously deceptive. And so those types of churches and preachers are friends of no one. They, they offer a false peace that makes people think that they are right with God when they aren't right with God. Jeremiah spoke of this concerning the priests and the false prophets of Judah. The priests and prophets were saying, you don't really need to worry about everything, anything. Everything is all right. We have peace with God. And this was just before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians and the people were taken captive. The priests and the prophets kept telling the people, all is well. Don't worry about this. There is peace. We can go on just the way that we are. Everything is fine. And so they wouldn't address the sins of the people and talk about that. Instead, those priests and those prophets indulged in the very same sins that the people were doing. And so we read in Jeremiah 6, verse number 14, they have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And what those words actually mean is that the prophets and the priests in Israel made the people feel better. They just told them this thing, these things to make them feel better. And right around the corner was the Babylonian army that was about to destroy their city, that would tear down their temple, that would haul the people out of their land, lock, stock, and barrel, and make them captives in a foreign country. There was no peace. But the people were just blissfully going along. And they were in a false peace. And folks, that is emblematic of what false preachers do. They make people think that all is well. Everything's okay between you and God. They make people feel God, uh, feel, feel good about themselves, and feel like they know God when really their destruction is right around the corner. And when they die, they think that they're going to wake up at the pearly gates of heaven and they'll just wait there to get their permission papers to go in, to get their ticket punched. And then they'll go through the pearly gates and everything will be fine. And what they don't understand, if they have not received Jesus Christ as Savior, they will wake up in the fires of an eternal hell and there is no chance of recovery. Now, you understand why we don't seek to have a dialogue with churches and pastors that do this, that try to combine the world with the church and try to make church like the world so that you will accept it? Do you understand why we're not seeking peace with leaders of other faiths? Because we have some supposed common ground. We don't have any common ground. The Bible says there is no peace. Ephesians 5.11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, do you think that Paul was talking about atheists? No, he was dealing with religious people, speaking to the religious world that were still in the darkness of the world. So compromising Christianity does not cut it. Jesus will not bring peace to that. 
Now, he will bring peace. He came to make peace, and he will make peace, but it only comes through his own blood and belief that that blood was satisfaction to the wrath of God. That's the believer's peace. And Jesus did come to make that peace, and he did make it for everybody who believes in him and him alone. They will receive the benefit of his peace. Now, I want to show you something about that peace, that the people that were living at the time of Jesus, fully expected that when the Messiah came, that he would bring peace. They expected that a kind of peace would be theirs in which hostility would be ended between Jews and Gentiles. And primarily at that time, of course, it was between Jews and the Romans. And the kind of peace that they were looking for is that the Jews would be elevated and the Romans or the Gentiles would be pushed down into subjection. And that was the common belief of the people. It was really the common belief of the disciples. And so when Jesus spoke to these apostles in this particular passage, they had the same misunderstanding of this as the rest of the people. Because that kind of peace in the world is not going to happen. At least it wasn't going to happen then. Now it's true the Messiah will bring peace, but he brings peace to a world of believers. He'll bring peace when he comes back to subdue this world. And the Bible says then he will fill the entire world with his glory and the peace of his kingdom. But this is not the time. That was not the time. And so we see the paradox here that Jesus came to bring peace, but at the same time, there was no peace, not on their terms. So peace is possible now. It's the believer's peace, the peace of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, we see the other side of this, which is the broken peace. And preachers would do well to consider Jesus' words here in verse 34. He didn't come to bring a political peace. He was not there to cure Israel's woes as a political savior. You'll notice what he says, that he came to bring a sword. Now, was that confusing to them? Well, that's exactly why we need the New Testament. It's why they needed some explanation of Old Testament prophecy because there are some confusing prophecies in the Old Testament that the people commonly misunderstood. And the reason for this is that sometimes in the Old Testament, the prophets would foretell events that were thousands of years away with ones that were right then. And it was difficult to tell those apart because they would put those in the same passage. Now, let me show you an example of that. I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 61. And I'll give you a few minutes to get there, a few seconds. Isaiah contains a lot of prophecy about the Messiah. It was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Many of you are familiar with chapter 7 and the great passage where Isaiah said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew quotes from that in the first chapter, verse number 23, and he explains to us that Emmanuel means God with us. And so that was a prophecy about the virgin birth of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says there, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it goes on to say, Of the increase of his government there shall be no end. And there are actually thousands of years between the first statement and the second statement there in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, if you look in Isaiah chapter 61, 
It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and, to the, op- and the opening of prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Now, some of you may recognize these words. Uh, Jesus spoke these exact words during his personal ministry. This was written by Isaiah, and in Luke chapter 4, Jesus was a visiting teacher in the synagogue at Nazareth, and he chose for the reading of God's word Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he read those verses and began to explain them. And he told them that the scriptures had been fulfilled right then, and he was the fulfillment of them. And do you know how he was received? He was driven out of the synagogue. They attempted to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. Now, there are two points that I want to make about that. And the first one is that in the Scriptures, there was a time gap there. And that time gap has now been over 2,000 years. And it's still not been fulfilled. When Jesus came the first time, he preached good tidings to the meek. And he came to heal the brokenhearted. And so his ministry was one of healing sin-sick souls and of physically sick people. That's in verse number 1 of that text. And verse number 2 has this little phrase in it, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then listen to this, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now you'll notice if you were to look that up in Luke chapter 4, that Jesus quoted the entire passage until he came to the last part and the day of vengeance of our God. And the reason that Jesus did not read it then is because the two parts of the prophecy have now been separated by thousands of years. The vengeance of God comes upon this earth when Jesus comes the second time. And then the second point that I want to make about that is that they threw Jesus out of the synagogue and they tried to kill him. Now at first they listened to him, they marveled at the graciousness of his words... And you'll find that as Jesus spoke to them, he said, This is fulfilled in your ears. This is what will happen. So they listened and marveled, but then they became angry because Jesus began to apply the scriptures to them. That's when they wanted to throw him off the cliff. Well, what was his crime? Their crime, rather. Their crime was rejecting him and his teachings. They didn't trust him as the Messiah. Uh, They were unbelievers, and so Jesus left them out. And if you follow that passage in Matthew 4, you'll find that Jesus put them down below even lepers that he had healed and Gentiles that would believe. They had their own system of righteousness. They didn't want Christ's righteousness, what he had to offer. They thought that they were far above any of the social outcasts. And certainly, they were far above the Gentiles. Now, you see a parallel developing here in Matthew chapter 10. When the gospel is preached in truth, when people are told that they are sinners, when they're told they must repent of their sins and get right with God, what do they do? They hate the news. They reject it. And so they say to us in a church like this, they will say, well, you, you're just a bunch of fanatics. You're out of the mainstream of Christianity. And they're exactly right. We are out of the mainstream of Christianity because we're not in the darkness. We're in the midst of darkness, but we're not of the darkness. We are light in that darkness. And so we can't mix with them. And the only way for us to get together with them is for them to come to the light. They have to come to the light because we're not going back to the dark. We were there once. We were in the dark once. And that's when we were lost in our sins. We're not going back there. 
And true faith in Jesus Christ does not permit us to go back there. Christ will not let us go back. Now we notice again he says that I came not to send peace but a sword. Now do you understand what he says there? In the history of the church there were many people who didn't understand. They thought that they were Christians. They didn't understand this. And so they thought that since Jesus did not bring peace when he came, that the idea is we must conquer the world with a sword. And those of you that know about the Crusades, this is what they did back in the 10th and 11th centuries, 13th, 12th century. They had Crusades in which they went to parts of the world, went to Israel and places like that, and misguided people who thought that they were Christians tried to Christianize other people by either killing them or making them to capitulate. So they forced people into submission. They had the, now this is sad for me to say to you folks, but they had the idea, people who called themselves Christians, the very same idea that Islam has today. That what you do is you kill the infidels or you make Muslims out of them. That's the only choice. And Christians did the very same thing. What is it that Jesus meant by this? Well, let me give you the meaning that cuts two ways, and no pun intended. But first of all is the sword of Scripture. Jesus came to bring the gospel which is revealed in the Word of God. It is the sword of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there scripture says that the gospel divides people. The spiritual sword that we use is the word of God, and that's explained to us in Ephesians 6 verse 17. We conquer the world through the gospel of Christ. That's what separates believers from unbelievers. It's what separates truth and lie, truth from lies. It divides righteousness from unrighteousness, and it shows the difference between light and darkness. That what, that's what happens when the Bible is preached. And the reason that you don't find the Bible in many churches and you don't find Scripture like we're doing today being explained because when it is explained, it will divide the congregation. It divides by exposing sin. And people either receive Christ and get right with God or they get mad and leave. And preachers don't like it when people get mad and leave, and so what they do instead is make the Word of God leave. Keep the people and throw out the Word of God. So that's one meaning of this phrase. But more important to the passage and mainly to the point is the sword of division. Now the sword of division can be non-metaphorical. When I speak of the sword of the gospel, of course, that's using it in a metaphorical way. But the sword of division can actually be non-metaphorical because in many times, or at many times, it was a literal sword. There were other means, swords, whatever, to kill Christians for their faith. Now, going back to Hebrews chapter 11, we read, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And so sometimes it was a physical sword. The first murder that was ever committed was a division in the family. A believer in the family against an unbeliever in the family. That's when Cain killed Abel. One of them believed in God and one of them didn't. 
And so Cain killed Abel. So sometimes it is a sword. Sometimes it's a real sword or a knife or a gun, something like that. But always, we can say metaphorically, it is a sword of division because Jesus goes on to say that peace in families will be broken. Verse 35 says, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And you remember Jesus already addressed that in verse 21. He said, And the brother shall deliver up brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And there are many times that this division happened in families. Many people were forsaken by their families, especially in a Jewish household when there was a convert to Christianity. The people would just cut that person off from their family. They would treat them as if they were dead. And sometimes they went as far as this. They held a funeral for them because they were dead from the rest of the family. Now that's the kind of division that comes because of the gospel. Peace is broken. You see, that's the paradox of believing in Christ. The believer has peace in his heart. He has peace with God because he's reconciled to God, but he has no peace with the world. He's too different from them. He's light in the midst of darkness, and so he can't mix with them. So Jesus is telling us here that if the world accepts you at all times and you have peace with them at all times, then either you are keeping your faith hidden or you don't have real faith. And I'm not talking about being personally antagonistic towards anyone. It just, it's just that we have here two spiritual worlds that are colliding, and the fallout spills out in our relationships. And so the gospel makes huge divisions. Well, there are people that couldn't take those divisions. There, there were those who couldn't handle that. They, they couldn't take being at odds with their families. Family was too important to them, so their families had to come first. And this is where it really cuts against the human grain because our old human heart will not accept this. The old heart is not going to live with that kind of division. And so what happened? There were many people that turned back from following Jesus. It was too great a sacrifice to make. Family was more important than their faith in Christ. And folks, this is the exact reason why that Jesus adds verse number 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see, Jesus is not going to take second place to your family or any other relationship. Luke records a similar statement in a much stronger way when Jesus stated it. He said, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and his wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Is that tough? That's a really tough statement, isn't it? I mean, does that mean that you have to go to the unbelieving members of your family and say, I hate you? And I'm going to leave you because I can't stand you? No, it doesn't mean that because that would be contrary to everything else we've read in Scripture. Both Old and New Testament say, love your neighbor as yourself and honor your father and your mother. So it doesn't mean that, but it does mean that love for Christ must be so strong, so binding, so committed that all other loves are considered secondary to the point that they would seem as hate. And that's because our love for Christ has the priority. Is it really possible to do that? Well, it must be because that's what Jesus demands. Now, let me just briefly relate to an example as we finish the message today. 
I think this is a great example, almost one that's too hard to believe. This is not about Christians and non-Christians in the same family, but this is about a Christian family. The whole family is believers, but there was one member of the family who had to make a choice to stay with his family or to stand up for Christ. Now, the name is a familiar one to most of you. His name was John Bunyan, and he was the author of Pilgrim's Progress, He was the uh, author of Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He was the author of The Holy War and many other types of literature, religious literature. John Bunyan lived in the 17th century in a time when the government told him that he had to stop preaching, that he had to conform to a confessional standard, that he had to be licensed to preach, and he could preach what he was told to preach, and if not, he had to stop. But Bunyan said, I can't stop preaching because God has called me to preach, so I will not stop. And they said, if you don't stop, then we're going to throw you in jail. Now, it sounds a whole lot like what happened to the apostles in Acts chapter 4. They were told to stop preaching, and they said, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And I'm sure that John Bunyan thought of Acts 4 when he made his decision. Now, the threat that they made to him was a real problem because John Bunyan wasn't going to a country club jail and the government didn't have a welfare program to take care of his family while he was in jail. And so John Bunyan had to make a choice. And let me tell you how difficult his choice was. First of all, he loved his wife, as all men should. He did. But he had a blind child. And this blind child was very, very special to him. He loved that child very, very dearly. And so he had to make a gut-wrenching decision. He could either decide to stop preaching and put his family above Christ, or he would go to jail. And so this is what he said after he made his decision. He decided, I will not stop preaching. And so he sat in jail in Bedford, England for 13 years. That's where we got Pilgrim's Progress when... John Bunyan was in the Bedford jail. But this is what he said. The parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardships I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. But yet, recalling myself, thought I, I must venture all with God, though it goeth to the quick to leave you. Oh, I saw in this condition I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children, Yet thought I, I must do it. I must do it. Is it possible to love Christ that much? So much that you would leave family behind? John Bunyan did. He wasn't a bad man because he did it. He was so committed to Christ that nothing could shake his faith. And this is what he really thought. God will take care of my family and God will take care of me. And he had this thought as well. If not in this life, If something happens in this life, I know that I have eternal life in heaven where I'll be with God and be with my family forever. 
Now, that's a choice that many martyrs have had to make. Many of them have gone on and, and they've left their families behind. They died for Christ and they left their families behind. But here is a man who lived and he watched his family for 13 years through the bars of a jail and it, death would have been much easier for him. It had been much easier for him just to die and end all of that. He was so near and yet so far from his family. One statement, just one, could have stopped that. He could have said, I will stop preaching. But he didn't stop. He preached through the bars of that cell, and that's what I call uncompromising Christianity. Now, folks, what I cannot see is a church and a pastor that gathers people together and says, let's have peace. And let's throw all the doctrines out. Let's forget all about what the Word of God says. Let's just come together. Let's leave everything else behind. And let's have peace in Jesus. They have no idea of the paradox of peace that Jesus speaks of in this chapter. There is a price to pay in real Christianity. There is a cost to it. And Jesus says, you must be willing to pay that cost if you want to be his disciple. Now, the gospel has been preached. As the word of God says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you now. We think about the cost of Christianity, what the Lord Jesus Christ demands from us. And Lord, I pray that we would have a Christianity that's no less, and can be no less than what we see in this chapter. Lord, I do pray that you would help every Christian here to understand we cannot compromise with the world. We cannot try to mix their ideas in with Christianity. We, we have to follow Scripture, believe Scripture, have faith in Jesus Christ alone because that's the only place that peace can be found. And I thank you, Lord, that there are people in this congregation. They have received you as Savior, and so they do have peace in their lives, and they are at peace with others who know you. Lord, we pray that you would bless today. Speak to some heart who doesn't know you as Savior. Help them to understand if they want peace in their life, then it must come through their faith in Christ. Bless us as we sing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.